Nadia Yacoub is professor of Arabic language and culture at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Her research has examined Arab medieval literature and contemporary oral poetry, as well as modern prose fiction and visual culture. I talked to her about three of her books, Bad Girls of the Arab World, which is about women and transgression in the Arab world, Palestinian cinema in the days of revolution, which is an incredible study of Palestinian resistance through the lens of third cinema, and her most recent edited anthology, Gaza on Screen. I learned a lot in this conversation about humility, opacity, and the limits of solidarity across distances and across gaps and exposure to vulnerability and violence. Um, Yakub is as a person with a deep understanding of the politics of the so-called humanitarian image, which is something she's very conflicted about in her work. She asks whether humanitarian images of Palestinian suffering are, quote, always depoliticizing or victimizing, or whether the depoliticization occurs through the inherently ideological frameworks in which such images circulate. I asked as my first question to Nadia what that idea of the framework means in the current moment where Palestinians are limited in using artistic practices to demand freedom. I think a lot of us are wondering about the political forces that exist around the overwhelmingly terrifying images that we're receiving of the total war being waged on Palestine's civilian population and infrastructure. Nadia's insights here are really helpful. There's this idea in her work that the visual practices of Palestinians make up what she calls an image archive of steadfastness. Steadfastness is a core value um, in Palestinian culture. Yakub is picking it up in a unique way though to say that, especially in terms of art and storytelling, steadfastness is about trying to sustain a sense of community. There's power in this idea for thinking about the role that communication plays in providing the conditions for political sympathy with Palestinian liberation. I don't want to necessarily belabor this introduction, so uh, please enjoy this wide-ranging, historically detailed interview with Nadia Yakub. I'll say that uh, the first question is obviously, like, it's hard not to start with the biggest questions when it comes to what you've written about. Um, much of what you've written in your work on how Palestinians use artistic practices and visual culture to demand freedom, justice, um, and return focuses on the political forces that exist kind of around the image and that govern how it can sort of be seen and interpreted. You know, this is a moment where almost four months into Israel's wanton destruction of Gaza, you know, where the regime regime has dropped more bombs than were dropped on Dresden during the Second World War. Like it's it's unlike virtually any campaign of military aggression in history, you could say. Um, and so, like, I obviously want to just sort of welcome you to the to this podcast and not overwhelm you at the start. But like, it's difficult not to to begin with this stark fact that Israel is committing genocide in Palestine. Um, you know, when you see a global movement trying to stand up and stand in the way uh, of the terror, but see that terror continue, 
um, how do you kind of keep going, I guess? And how do you try to maintain some sense of hope that images, radical media, storytelling can still convince the world that the Palestinian cause is just? Well, um, I think, you know, I was at an event um, organized by Arab Students Organization last week at UNC, and uh, one of the speakers talked about hope. And I think what she said was really correct um, and really insightful, which is that hope is not something you have. um, It's something you build. Um, and so, uh, you know, if you look at human history, it's pretty miserable. (laughs) Um, usually the powerful win, um, and the dispossessed do not. Um, and, uh, it's very, very rare that, that there are stories that are in any sustainable way, um, positive. Uh, or narratives, you know, uh, outcomes. Um, but it's not, you know, but but that's not monolithic. It's not always that way. Um, uh, you could also make the argument that if you don't struggle for justice, that uh, things would be even worse. <laughs> That, you know, even if you come to the conclusion that the status quo is the best that you can have, um, that doesn't mean you give up because, like, we know it could always get worse. (laughs) This is perhaps too dark. (laughs) Um, But uh, but I think. um, uh, And then the other thing I would say is that, you know, the vast majority of us just have to be have to have a lot of humility. And what I mean by that is, you know, there's a there's a lot of, there's been a lot of scholarship and other kinds of writing and speech around, you know, the failure of images. I mean, you go back to Susan Sontag, right? And um, regarding the pain of others. Um, and, uh, um, and there's a way in which, you know, you expect a photograph or a film or a speech or an artwork to somehow so perfectly encapsulate the situation and be so convincing to every single audience that it's going to change the world. And obviously, that's not, that's, that's not going to happen. And it's true for any one individual and the multiple images and speech acts and other kinds of acts that they may perform. That, um, you know, I'm a faculty member at a university. I teach students. I organize events. I, I write mostly academic prose that is, you know, relatively small audience books. Um, and you know, I'm not going to change the world, but I'm, I have a tiny impact. Um, you know, I have students who've gone out and done, you know, various good and bad things in the world. Um, and, uh, so, you know, and, you know, also through just my casual networks and friendships and conversations I have, with people I meet, you know, on the bus or 
that I walk with regularly, you know, all of those things have their small, small impacts. Um, and uh, if you think about them, if you do them, if you go out in the world and participate, um, you know, you do have your, you do, you do something good, um, even if you're not going to change the world. Um, and you just have to hope that you can help to grow the number of people that are doing good things and that that will, um, at the very least, keep things from getting worse hmm. um, or mm -hmm. slow down the, way, the pace at which they get worse. Yeah. You know, there's always climate change looming in the background. Um, but, uh, um, and perhaps we'll, we'll make a, you know, some positive differences here and there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think like this is, um, there's a lot of different ways that we can kind of go with that, like really incredibly um, generous response. You know, like I've been thinking a ton about uh, the role that communication plays in yeah. providing the grounds for basically like greater political sympathy um, toward, in this case, Palestinian liberation. Um, and how like what little control I have over representation can help expand people's mm -hmm. awareness of, yeah. you know, the justness of the Palestinian cause. But yeah, and climate is something that I certainly focus on a lot in the podcast um, and feel so often like something that's too late and there's too little we can do about it. But, you know, if we, if we like acquiesce to this apocalyptic, stuff that is coming yeah. in the future obviously um that's just not it's not tenable like that that option and you know the 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 problem seems to be though like one of the chronic issues especially but not exclusively within israel is that control of media representation um gideon levy told me recently that there's like a highly controlled media apparatus right, right. in israel that's like complicit basically with the Zionist regimes, colonial ambitions, um, and the occupation, Be you know, it's it's. He said basically, it's working to exonerate Israel and Israelis. Sure. You know, yeah. um, and you know, in your edited anthology, Gaza on Screen, there's this really brilliant essay by Rebecca Stein, right, where she right. says, you know, Israel's strategies are terrifyingly effective. Um, you know, like that said, um, I think you and Stein both kind of see the emergence of new media technologies and just more solidarity as allowing a certain kind of awakening, you know, um, that does not seem to be the case necessarily in Israel. Um, the annihilationist intent of Netanyahu's far right government has a lot of support but like if you're looking at social movements globally the injustice the asymmetry right, situation right. is clear rather than rendering palestinians legitimate targets right that's how stein puts it do you think the dominant frame has shifted more towards sympathy for the occupied in this moment you know it's it's hard for me to say um uh, you know, I wrote in Palestinian cinema in the days of revolution about um, uh, Telezater, 
and the massacre of Talazatar, which followed closely on the heels of two other massacres in, you know, the massacre in Damur, of, you know, the Christian town of Damur, and before that in Carantina, in, you know, of a poor, mostly Muslim neighborhood in West, in East Beirut. And uh, sorry, did I say Damur in, on, the, on the Western side? So, and those horrific acts of violence, but especially Talazatar, because of this, you know, 50 some day, 52 day siege and, um, and the, just the brutality of that, um, that, that felt like a turning, you know, I was only like 17 years old, but that felt like a huge thing. Um, then in 1982, my parents were still living in Beirut during the Israeli invasion of Lebanon. And that invasion seemed unprecedented in the horrific violence that Israel inflicted on the Palestinians and Lebanese. And they occupied, you know, they came up to a, an Arab capital. They had never done that before. And, and there were all these journalists who were in Lebanon, you know, Western journalists, because they existed back in those days in large numbers. And, you know, Beirut was a hub for many of them that covered the region. So it was really well covered. Um, and it was horrifying. Like, how could they have the audacity to inflict this kind of violence? And that felt like a turning point in terms of violence. And then you had the second intifada and, you, you know, this policy of breaking bones, which like that we will intentionally break the bones of protesters in lieu of shooting them. Like it's better to break bones than shoot them. But that shocked. And again, there were lots and lots of journalists on the ground. This was all of, you know, this also felt like, how can people be so brutal? Um, and then we've got, you know, 2008, 2009, well, the 2006 invasion of Lebanon, again, this massive just level of destruction, every one of these just felt like, you know, Israel has gone beyond, it's gone beyond the limits. And surely this time, you know, people are, the international community is going to step in, Israel's going to become a pariah state. And then we've got 2008, 2009 attack on Gaza and 2014, 2021, you know, and then there's the, you know, 2012, you know, in between that didn't even get covered. Um, the Great March of Return was barely even covered in the media, and yet it was brutal violence. And so so there's a way in which, I mean, so that that's sort of another <laughs> narrative, but there's a way in which I've just in my lifetime have experienced so many of these events that have felt like this has to be it. This has to be when the tide turns. I am not enough of a media scholar to be able to say that uh, new media frameworks, um, and I would include not just, you know, the rise of social media and but also things like the development of satellite TV, which changed the media landscape in the Arab world and now beyond, whereby, you know, sitting here in the U.S., um, I can get Al Jazeera in either Arabic or English. And, you know, uh, you know, Americans can get Al Jazeera in English really easily. Um, so, you know, that by itself, you know, that's a that's sort of a traditional media, but yet its scope is so different now. 
um, than it used to be. I can't say um, how much these factors are affecting this present global moment, this moment, you know, in comparison to previous ones. Um, my, my intuition is that, um, well, first of all, all of these media frameworks have their limitations and they're, you know, I mean, you know this better than I do, you know, social media, it's all owned by the big tech companies and they have their biases and they have their algorithms and ways of, of affecting political speech. And then there's AI and the bots and, you know, deep fakes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but beyond that, I, I think that, um, uh, and this sort of goes back to Edward Said and Orientalism, um, that there is a way of, there's an intertwining of power and information flows and representation that are sort of mutually reinforceable. And I wouldn't say that it's monolithic. I wouldn't say that, you know, it's inevitable that the powerful will remain powerful and uh, nobody else can ever get a word in edgewise. But uh, that it's inevitable that we have the, the social media <laughs> frameworks that we have, given the power structures under which they were created or through which they were created. Um, and uh, again, you've got, you've got to struggle and struggle and struggle um, you know, in human history, power ebbs and flows for various complex reasons. Um, and uh, whether this is a moment globally um, where Palestine is not the only issue that might result in a shift, um, I couldn't say. But perhaps it is. Um yeah. And it's, uh, so, and that's, I mean, I'm speaking way out of my area of expertise no, but, here. Um, but, I really appreciate it because like yeah. you're bringing this kind of, uh, um, you know, I think really textured like sense of the history to the contemporary moment where I don't think anyone knows. Like it's, uh, it's uh, Judith Butler said on this podcast that, um, you know, she feels as though we are always imagining that world um, and that if we weren't, there would be no way to experience outrage. There would just be complacency, right? And so I think like the history that you offer kind of reinforces that idea. And I was kind of hoping that um, we could shift slightly toward thinking through the like events that led us to this mm -hmm just unbelievably dire situation. And you kind of gave us a, a way to do that. This book uh, that you mentioned, Palestinian cinema in the days of revolution provides, um, you know, a, a, a remarkable history and it reaches back to try and understand the ways that Palestinian cinema emerged as part of like a bigger wave of decolonization mm -hmm. movements globally. Um, so, you know, I, I generally am just curious to hear you talk about what came out of researching that book for you 
Um, obviously, one of the thing that, things that's really interesting about it, and you mentioned in the book, is that um, you're sort of positioned as an outsider, so to speak, you know, writing about um, these movements. Like, you were educated in the U.S., uh, but lived for many years in, in Beirut um, and elsewhere in the Arab world. Uh, the way you put it is that your family history brushes up against that of the Palestinian revolution. Um, so like, for example, you talk about how Palestinian cinema, specifically in the 1970s and onward is really informed by so-called third world cinema movements. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that might be an interesting thing to unpack for people. Like, I don't know that that's a particularly well understood thing. Um, you know, how how I guess did revolutionary Palestinian films fit in relation to so-called you know third world cinema movements and what are some of the characteristics of that? Okay, so the third world cinema movement arose out of the third cinema movement to some hmm. extent, which um, you know there are these classic texts um, by Latin American. Um, filmmakers, activists, scholars, um, articulating this idea of third cinema. Mm -hmm. And basically what that is, is that um, cinema is this very, very powerful communication tool. Mm -hmm. Um, And, but it's ideological uh, framework. First of all, it's, it's mostly allied with empire. um, And, uh, Every aspect of filmmaking and viewing um, are informed by that, you know, that alliance with empire. So, you know, the way it's funded, uh, the way it's made, the types of stories that are told, um, uh, and the way that it's that it's it's distributed and viewed, um, all serve to sort of uh, reinforce. Um, you know, the hege- you know, imperial hege- hegemonies. Um, and that uh, there, that if one wants to do something, you know, if one wants to argue, fight against that, you need to create a whole new cinema infrastructure. And this has to be, um, you know, it has to be like, it, it starts with funding. So, you know, you are just not going to have the funding. There's no way to have big budget films and have them not be ideologically compromised. You're going to rely a lot on, you know, found footage on, you know, maybe 16 millimeter as opposed to um, 32 millimeter. Your, you know, small crews, um, you know, your film crews are all going to like everyone has to be able to do everything. Um, uh, It's going to be black and white, um, uh, perhaps more documentary than fiction. Um, uh, so, so the production, you know, so the, the funding, the nature of the production, uh, and then the way that it's, um, and then the distribution, you know, is, it's not going to be through these, you know, for-profit, you know, theaters, but, you know, it's gonna, it's gonna go through revolutionary circuits through, you know, union halls or universities or, or, you know, outdoors or, you know, these spaces where politics happens and the film will, the film has to be, um, you know, it's, it's got to be a gathering of people in person. Of course, in those days, you couldn't imagine any, well, I guess you had television, but um, uh, 
um, you know, it's in person. And then the film is accompanied by dialogue. So the film is not in and of itself the revolutionary project product, but the film is the basis for an event at which there is discussion, um, uh, education happens, and it's two ways. And then, you know, the filmmaker learns from this these events, the, the practice of screening the films and talking to people, and goes back and changes the film, maybe, maybe changes that actual film, or, or creates a new one that is a little bit different. And so it's this constant dialectic uh, process. It's, it's, it's always in motion. So that was third cinema. And, um, and then, uh, you know, those ideas articulated by Latin American filmmakers, but also resonating with um, what's, what's happening elsewhere as uh, much of the newly decolonized world is, is looking to cinema as, um, as an important tool uh, in a couple of different ways. One is that, you know, there, you know, this idea of development um, is still pretty widely understood as a positive thing that, you know, you know, that this idea, I mean, there were already ideas expressed by, um, you know, Franz Fanon and, you know, many others that like, we don't need to become like Europe, <laughs> Uh, you know, technology, you know, that's, there's not just one path, but, um, but, uh, but nonetheless, you know, there was also, you know, very widespread idea that technological development is a positive thing. There's a kind of catching up to be done technologically. Um, and cinema is a part of that in terms of culture, education, um, and so on. Um, so in and of itself, but then also in response to the ways in which the, the more sort of imperialist cinema, you know, American cinema and in the Arab world also, you know, French cinema is widely circulated, spreading these values that are not necessarily friendly uh, to the types of nations that, you know, many Arab intellectuals wanted to see being built at that time. Um, uh, so, so there's that idea on the one hand of, you know, like this idea that cinema is important in terms of development. And then this third cinema idea of, um, you know, that's, that's a little more radical of, you know, cinema as, um, you know, a space for, uh, uh, not just developing nations, but developing particular kinds of, of revolutionary societies. Um, um, so, um, so third cinemas, you know, I mean, if you look at the, at the, you know, literature, um, you know, you, you start to see less talk of like third cinema and more of third world cinema. And that's a bigger term. Um, it encompasses, you know, all these kinds of cinemas that I'm talking about. So, um, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the building of public sector cinemas in many, uh, you know, relatively recently um, independent uh, countries around the world. Um, so, you know, I mean, in the Arab world, that's mainly Algeria and um, and Syria, and um, you know, well, and Egypt as well. I mean, Egypt had its big commercial cinema, but then under Nasser in the fifties, um, there, you know, they start to develop 
also a public sector cinema. Um, and there were a lot of hopes invested in, in that project that um, sort of, um, excuse me, was greatly curtailed when uh, said that, you know, when Nasser died and Sadat came to power. Hmm. Um, but uh, so early on, because that's like 1970. Sure. Um, but so, so, you, so public sector cinema is one aspect of it. And mm. then, um, uh, and then you've got, um, you know, the rise of some small film collectives um, and, uh, uh, and the Palestinian cinema um, that begins in the late sixties in Amman, you know, is a part of this whole, this whole process. Right. Um, and uh, um, go ahead. Well, yeah, I just wondered yeah. if you could like convey maybe like uh, your own personal attachment to these films. Like, are there moments where you felt as, as a so-called kind of outsider changed by a collective screening? Because you do say like, these are networked images valued more for their virality than their representational qualities. And it's interesting to use the term virality, uh, but it's like a form of viewing that's about maintaining a sense of community um, in moments of crisis. Like, can you recall particular films or moments where, you know, your political awareness, your motivation for writing, your your activism, like, was uh, mo mobilized by, like, being moved by one of those moments? So, I... Uh... So yes. <laughs> so when I first I, I first came to studying film, uh, you know I'm I'm not trained as a film scholar. Um, I came out my PhD is in Near Eastern Studies from UC Berkeley, um, and my training is largely philological, and I moved you know basically from linguistics to literature, um, and then came to film through teaching because. I started to incorporate Arab films in my Arabic literature classes as a way of, you know, just sort of animating the classes. And, you know, there's just so much that you can communicate through just never mind the foreground or the story, the background, <laughs> you know, the background of, you know, what's, you know, what is Beirut like as a city, you know, or, or Cairo or anything else. Um, uh, and then, um, uh, and then when I started to to want to write about film, I started to go to go to, to, go to Palestinian film festivals. And uh, for mundane reasons, began going to the London Palestine Film Festival um, in the, you know, I can't remember when the first time I went, maybe 2008, 2009, something like that. Um and, uh, you know, by the third time I went to that annual film festival, I had a community there. And one, you know, there, there are Palestinian film festivals all over the place. And back, you know, at that time they were, you know, there was, you know, Australia, Houston, Belgium, uh, London, Chicago, um, Boston, um, Toronto, um, and probably some others. And most of those are continuing today. Um, I, and each one, you know, there was overlap, obviously, because they would include, you know, whatever new films were coming out, but each one had its own 
flavor a little bit in how it dealt with the sort of history of Palestinian film festivals. And the London Festival had an investment in the 1970s. And the people that organized it um, were just really interested in that, that particular period of history and always included um, what they could find, you know, in the way of both Palestinian works, but also other, um, um, you know, other works, uh, um, you know, sort of radical, politically radical works uh, from that time. And so I, so, so I got this community and I, I, you know, got this education in film of the 1970s. And um, this sort of culminated at the Palestine Film Festival with an event um, called The World is With Us. I've, I, that was, I wrote about that in the book, um, I think in the acknowledgments or somewhere um, in 2014 where uh, the Palestine Film Foundation, which was connected to the, the film festival, brought some 30-some films from the 1970s, I think 34 films. And they had screenings. It, it, there was like three days of screenings. They brought all kinds of people. They brought filmmakers um, and, uh, you know, a couple of key activists from that period. Um, and, uh, and then there was an art installation that was there for a month um, in a gallery space in East London, in Shoreditch, um, where they had old, you know, tube televisions from the 1970s. They had about eight or 10 of them just screening all these films on a loop. And um, I, so I attended that and I spent like a week <laughs> just watching these films over and over again. It was very, very hot because there was like some small space, all these giant TVs letting off heat and there was a heat wave going on. And of course, you know, London, there's no air conditioning or anything. So, but anyway, um, uh, um, so that, and, you know, I'm, I still have several friends, you know, in London that, you know, I just did a book launch there in the fall and, and I feel, you know, there is a community around programming of films um, that I became a part of um, through that through that that experience. Right. Um, so, and and it was that experience. You know, I wanted to write about Palestinian film, but I wasn't quite sure how I wanted to do it and what I wanted to do. And it was that experience in London, and in particular that last, you know, the 2014 thing uh, event, that made me realize I, I, I need to, I need to know this material. I need to know this material really, really well before I can even deal with the later stuff that mm. I had been studying prior to that time. Right. Um, yeah. It sounds like there was a really powerful pull. Yeah. And, it, uh, you know, the sense I get uh, that I find really compelling. Um, so I think in the you also write about sort of the difference between these like large screenings and the kind of lightweight, uh, you know, circulation of videos on small screens. It's like it's it matters. Like for you, mm -hmm. I think film is a really material thing. It's about yeah. 
like what survives. It's how people survive. Um, you talk about how the filmmaking, filmmaking of Pal- Palestinians has often had to like fight not only to be seen, but to be made and to be preserved. Right, right, um, right. Like there's this gutting moment where you write that, quote, Palestinian archives are continually being erased and resisting that erasure is a key component of Palestinian activism. Like right. that's not a, a theoretical problem, but it's, it's, you know, a question of erasure that you are theorizing in certain mm-hmm. ways. Um, and do you sort of ever reflect on uh, the place of theory here? I mean, it sounds like more than anything, the motive force of wanting to study it does come from these conversations that you have with people and that connection that you feel. Um, But, you know, it's interesting to me to think about existing in relation to a cinematic movement that is itself doing a sort of theorization when it comes to fighting erasure. Um, do you think about sort of what your work offers to that form of resistance at all? Um, well, I think, uh, I, I feel like I'm indebted more than I am giving, honestly. Um, and, uh, so, I mean, I've just learned so, so much from other people's work. And I'm talking about very grounded work. I mentioned the, you know, the work of those, you know, the London Palestine Film Festival, Palestine Film Foundation, but also um, the work of all these people that have been, you know, knee deep or even neck deep in all this work uh, around Palestinian archives and just trying to, save them, rebuild them, restore them, recreate them. Um, uh, so I, I don't know that I teach them anything. I think it's much more, you know, that they teach me. I think what I have to offer is that, um, you know, where I am located, I have resources. I can access other archives that are not as accessible to people who may be based in, say, Amman or, or Ramallah or Gaza or, you know. Um, and, you know, I'm at a really, you know, wealthy institution where, you know, through interlibrary loan, um, you know, I can read all the journals in ways that other people can't or, you know. And so... What I was able to do was to, um, you know, to amass, you know, to look at all this material, um, bring it together. And I think I do have some skills in, in writing. <laughs> and, uh, and that's, that's what I brought is, you know, it's, it's, I, I feel like my work is a little bit more of a reporting. I mean, there is theorization, of course. But I tend to theorize from the ground rather than from the top. And that's partly, you know, coming out of an area studies department. Um, that's, that's my training. I'm very well aware of that, you know, that there, there are pitfalls to that approach. So it's not that I'm ignoring uh, theory 
um, that is produced in other contexts, but, um, uh, um, but yeah. That's like, um, that's a lot. Right. And I think that idea of like theorizing from the ground is about what you kind of said at the beginning of the conversation, which is like humility, a certain intellectual humility um, is sort of embodied in your practice. Like when you say it's difficult to overestimate the commitment of these filmmakers Mm -hmm. Uh, at times they slept with their cameras in order to be ready at any minute to go out and film a new atrocity. Um, You know, like what would it, what would it mean to sort of just take that as, as data and to say like, I am pedagogically here to like explain what this means. Like there's a real humility, for example, to the filmmakers round table that you include in Gaza on screen, Mm -hmm. right? It's just incredible. Um, And one of the things that comes out of that discussion which I guess you you moderated is that it's like actually I didn't moderate actually that oh, no, was okay. uh, no Azal I brought in Azal Hassan oh, okay who is the Palestinian filmmaker I wanted a pal a fil- Palestinian filmmaker to moderate it not me from the outside okay so I introduced it and then yeah mm, okay yeah uh, that's I appreciate that uh, yeah. context yeah uh, I guess I misread that. But, you know, it's it's this idea in that roundtable, the way you introduce it is about like a certain humility, right? That you're learning from what they're saying. And what they're saying is, um, in part, that there there's a real, uh, there's real potential in like re- defying expectations, refusing to focus on just the trauma of occupation. You've written a, a, quite a bit about this idea that simply depicting the beauty of life in Palestine um, is potentially an act of political mm-hmm. refusal. This idea, as you say, that like the background, what is life like, you know, yeah. in the background. Um, so I, you know, I was just kind of hoping that you might be interested in talking about that, um, that idea of um, depicting the everyday as a kind of tactic of resistance, a humanizing uh, mm-hmm. tactic. Um, and yeah, just sort of what you maybe, how that came out of that particular round table for you to some extent. So I will do that. But as you were talking, an idea came to me that I wish I had included in the introduction. (laughs) Um, so you are going to be the first to hear it, but you know, this idea of, of, you know, theorizing from the ground, Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, I talked a lot about, you know, I mean, you know, like the humanitarian image, the image of violence in the introduction and the ways in which it's, you know, like it's sort of, it's, it's, it's very reflexively rejected as being depoliticizing, you know, that's, you know, and, and, you know, several of the contributors to the book make that point. And, and it certainly is true that, that uh, the, the humanitarian image or the image of violence, the image of victimhood, all of those can definitely be dehumanized dehumanizing and depoliticizing um, uh, for the people who are depicted in the images. Um, At the same time, there is this, you know, there's this phrase, you know, show the world, show the world that, uh, that, you know, has also been discussed extensively by people who are reflecting on reporting from Palestine or filmmaking from Palestine. Like if only the world had, could see, then they would act and they would change um, 
what's what's happening on the ground. Um, and that also has been critiqued. And, you know, uh, at, the, you know, at the theoretical level here, you know, by scholars of film and photography in the West, but also, you know, by many Palestinians, Azal Hassan in particular. Um, uh, and I've used her work on this a lot, um, where she makes that point, um, and it informs her filmmaking. But, um, you know, with the recent, with what's been happening recently, and this takes us back to what you, you know, what you asked me about in terms of like the, you know, media frameworks today and, you know, are they having an effect? Or, um, is it different? Is this a turning point? Um, I've been thinking about the, you know, it's, it's really less the content of the image or even the circulation of images themselves, then it is the attention economy that makes a difference. I mean, this sounds rather banal, um, but it's actually not. And this is a there's a kind of theorizing from the ground, I think, from Palestinians when they say, show the world. They're, what they're saying is, make the world pay attention. Everybody, all of you, you come here, you tell us you want to help. This is what you can do. You can make the world pay attention. And there's something really profound about that. And um, uh, that may be a little bit that is different today. I mean, the world is paying attention. I mean, you know, the mainstream media is barely paying attention. Um, but uh, people are. And, you know, the fact that we continue to have, you know, hundreds of thousands of people coming out to demonstrations in London and, you know, and big actions in Oakland and Brooklyn and, um, you know, all over the world, um, uh, that, uh, uh, you know, and, and that, I mean, I really, that, that's the only hope that we have is through those mass, mass actions. And those mass, mass actions will only happen if we pay attention. And if we, if we insist that everybody else pay attention, like, right. like, okay, it's not the top, it's not on the first page of your, of the New York times anymore, but right. it's still beyond what is acceptable for human beings to do to each other. And yeah. it still needs to be addressed. Um, yeah. And so that that's a kind of theorizing from the ground I really want to draw attention to um, uh, that um, I wish I'd written about that. Maybe I'll write it. I'll write about it, you know, somewhere I hope else. You do. Yeah. And I mean, um, you know, this this is writing about it in a sense. Right. Like yeah. this this yeah. venue is exactly about like trying to kind of, yeah. uh, you know, work with. Uh, uh, these complex problems, like work out these complex problems. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, the, the question of the attention economy is, is for me, not banal. I mean, like there's a lot at stake um, still, I would say in, in the self-censorship of Israeli media, in the algorithmic censorship of, of meta and Facebook, like there is a strong sense in your work that these things do matter um, like, you know, uh, in terms of the history, even like thinking back, yeah. there's these turning points that you identify that you're trying to draw attention to. 
Um, you know, you're interested in everything from like the 1950s and the formation of these kind of first militant groups in Palestine to, I think like, especially there's this um, concern with the first Intifada and how the uprising that eventually led to the Oslo Accords and the creation of the PLO um, or uh, Palestinian, uh, Palestinian Authority is kind of remembered. Um, and like the ultimate failure of Oslo is a key moment too. You know, you seem to be sort of um, circling around to some extent uh, this question of like armed struggle, basically, as a as a sort of line in the sand politically. Yeah. You've written that the political landscape for Palestinians is as fragmented today uh, as it was in the immediate aftermath of the 1948 war. I mean, you know, given the impacts of October 7th um, and the coordinated attack on Israel that Hamas led on that day, um, you know, I feel like we have to wonder, you know, what, ha- you know, how, how has that attack as a, as a major event in the cultivation of certain attitudes or dispositions toward armed resistance sort of changed uh, what I think you call um, not Palestine, not cultures, uh, political culture in Palestine, but um, yeah, the ethic, what you call the ethics and efficacy of armed struggle um, and how filmmakers are, you know, uh, artists are, are existing in relation to and in the aftermath of those forms of armed resistance. Um, did you want to speak to that at all? Yeah, I mean, that's, um, I, I, I can speak to that. I don't have answers. Um, uh, I mean, I, I feel as if, well, first of all, it's not my place to say you should or shouldn't engage in armed struggle or any other, you know, and violence. And then you like, what is violence anyway? You know, when you've got these, you know, um, you know, anti-Palestinian activists who were calling like boycott a violent act or saying, you know, saying anything remotely pro-Palestinian as being somehow violent speech. Um, uh, it's, you know, like, then it's like, okay, you just throw up your hands and say, okay, well, since violence is everything, yeah, we have to, <laughs> we'll all have just have to be violent. I'm sorry. Um, but on the other hand, if you restrict violence to, um, uh, uh, you know, let's say actually, you know, the actual use of, uh, let's just draw the line r- somewhat arbitrarily with, with um, like anything that has like gunpowder in it <laughs> and above. So um, the idea being that, you know, I mean, a, a stone is not, you know, I mean, it doesn't really matter where you draw the line, um, whether you include stone throwing or not. But uh, um, then, you know, I mean, I, I don't, I don't think for me sitting here comfortably in the United States to say, well, Palestinians shouldn't, you know, use guns or grenades or Molotov cocktails or, you know, or even, you know, throw stones or knives or, you know, drones or missiles. Um, 
they should only use nonviolent means. Um, uh, and then when you have this long history where every attempt at using these nonviolent means, which, you know, which is the vast majority of Palestinian actions, which has included, um, you know, uh, negotiation, um, uh, appeals to authorities, whether it's, you know, British mandate authorities, appeals to Israeli authorities, appeal to the U.S., appeal to the EU, et cetera, et cetera, going through, you know, going through the courts, whether it's, you know, as we've seen most recently, you know, the ICJ, the ICC, the, you know, U.S. federal courts, apparently there are also cases in other uh, national courts. Um, I don't know that much about them, but... Um, uh, but then also going through like Israeli military courts, um, which was, you know, a big nonviolent effort after the 67 war among young, young lawyers, that idea, you know, Al-Haq, that, you know, NGO is the main organization that did this. They said, look, okay, we are going to fight these land confiscations and administrative detentions using the law as a tool to uh, improve Palestinian lives. And if you read Raja Shahada, you know, his experiences, you know, at the end of, you know, decades of doing this work, realizing that by actually participating in this court process, we have, because of the way it was structured against us, we have actually contributed to the creation of this military law that now oppresses us. And uh, because this whole body of law that governs the West Bank um, came into being through the military occupation and was built uh, through the through occupation. So, uh, you know, so that's one type of nonviolent, you know, action, totally underreported, devastating, absolutely devastating to Palestinians in terms of their very basic rights um, uh, under Israeli occupation. And then you've got things like, you know, attempting to move through human rights organizations, very careful documentation of violations, you know, you know, the work of B'Tselem and other organizations. Uh, uh, and then, you know, nonviolent demonstrations, boycotts, strikes, you know, you know, the great march of return, they've tried, and they've, you know, it's, it's mostly failed. And not only has it failed, not only have Palestinians not regained anything that has been lost in the hundred years war since, you know, the establishment of the British mandate, um, where, which is really the beginning of Palestinian dispossession, um, not only that, but the in encroachment of dispossession, mainly on the part of Israel, has continued. So, so it's like you just sit there and watch you your life just slowly being seeped away from you, whether in small ways like you know the time you spend at a checkpoint the, um, you know, all the efforts you need to make to get a work permit, the kinds of political compromises you need to make, the worry and anxiety and stress to protect your children, especially the boys, your boys, as they, you know, approach, I don't know, five years old now <laughs> before they can be, 
you know, administratively detained. Um, the, you know, watching, you know, your houses, you know, get destroyed, you're, you know, you just, you're just, um, you know, there's this encroachment. So it's like, all you can do is disappear. You can disappear slowly. Uh, I mean, that's what happens if you don't resist, you'll just disappear slowly. Um, so who am I to say, it's better for you to disappear slowly? than for you to like say, enough is enough. Um, yeah. I'm gonna, I'm gonna act out. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I feel as if a better way to think of it, it's not to think like we like that any of us should judge. Mm -hmm. um, but rather, let's, let's examine the conditions and explain why certain things are inevitable, mm -hmm. including October 7th, mm -hmm. which, mm -hmm. um, you know, you probably know as well as I do that like long before October 7th, people who were paying attention were saying this is going to explode. Yeah. I mean, the Israeli government was warned. Um, that it was going to be, uh, that the situation was escalating, I think, by yeah. Egypt, right? Um, and even be, I mean, it was in the, I think it was, there were probably editorials in the New York sure. Times saying that. I mean, I can't yeah. remember now what I read and where. That, but, yeah, that inevitability, that sense of, yes. you know, Gideon Levy told me about this, like, it, yeah. from his perspective in Israel, like, there is just an, uh, a kind of willful blindness when it comes mm -hmm. to that relationship of cause and effect, Right. Um, you know, the, the violence at the Al-Aqsa Al Mosque yeah. and the Sheikh Jarrah, like led to um, earlier escalations, you know, the, the sheer number of Palestinian, innocent Palestinians killed um, is enough to provoke any, you know, any form of resistance. And yet it becomes very difficult, I think, for, for those of us, as you say, who are existing in this kind of comfortable bubble to like go to a place of uh, actually dwelling with that, yeah. you know, that question of do you disappear quickly or slowly? Yeah. Um, and I think images definitely have a role to play in collapsing that distance. Um, there is certainly a sense, you know, looking back uh, through your work um, that, you know, uprisings in the West Bank and Gaza can attract attention, you know, um, that you can leverage mass communication to build solidarity. And I think that combined with Palestinian documentary practice is seen in your work as a powerful, a potentially powerful weapon. Um, and I think, you know, Israel understands that it is. I mean, look at the ways in which it's targeting journalists in the current right. offensive. Right. So that has to be yeah. on some level an indication. But um, I kind of wanted to come back to... Um, like there's so much, right? But mm -hmm. uh, something you said earlier about the the humanitarian image, right, which right. I just think is maybe worth fleshing out. Like what I think is really powerful and kind of like dialectical in the way that you write about it is that you're saying that we might actually need to accept, as you say, the necessity or at least the inevitability of humanitarian images as long as violence and dispossession continue. But like that doesn't mean that we only read them one way. Right? right. You right. say that we need to develop strategies for effectively viewing them. 
Um, I think the way that you kind of think about witnessing politically is uniquely clear uh, from my perspective, because you're sort of saying that we need to be critical witnesses, that we need to, mm-hmm. you, you use this uh, term from Edward Glissant of opacity, right? That we need to recognize actually the opacity of the images and films, uh, the reports that we, we might receive. Um, I think that is a really tricky concept for people, maybe, like in terms of yeah. tr- what to trust, what not to trust. It's It feels to me like trust is what's at stake in opacity, you know, what, you know, I guess the, the flat question or, or the simple way to put it is why is critical witnessing important when it comes to these images? Well, I would say, um, I, uh, I'm not sure if I would call it critical witnessing, but, um, humble witnessing, (laughs) it comes back to humility. Um, the idea being, I mean, for me, I think thinking of every image as being opaque um, uh, is about recognizing the limitations of what, of one's own perspective of recognize. This is not to say one can't draw conclusions about an image and what one sees in it but that one draws those conclusions always with the awareness that somebody else might see something else that you are not going to see just because of their different life experience, their different knowledge, their different, you know. Um, And uh, so this is where um, I'm saying I, what I find useful about the, the theory of opacity. I mean, the way, uh, you know, some of the ways in which it's been used in the art world is about creating works that are really difficult to see. Like it's hard to tell what's going on. So there, the purpose of the work is not necessarily specifically to address any particular political or social condition, but rather to raise awareness about opacity in the viewer. So it's, it's a kind of, they're operating on a rather abstract level, which is nothing wrong with that. Um, but it's not the level, it's not the aspect of opacity that interests me per se. What I'm more interested in is uh, what the way opacity, as I understand Glissant, the idea that, that, I, as a Caribbean poet or a Palestinian filmmaker or an Iraqi, you know, visual artist or a, I don't know, Senegalese musician, uh, I'm going to create this work and throw it out into the world. And, you know, some people are going to come really, really close to understanding what I am trying to express in my work because their experience is so close to mine. Um, they know the language, they've lived, they've lived in the same places, they have come from a similar, you know, socioeconomic background, et cetera, et cetera. And then there are other people who, for one reason or another, are gonna get 
a little bit less and a little bit less and a little bit less, depending on, you know, how far away they are. Um, and, you know, and there are all kinds of factors that can, you know, this is not like predetermined, obviously, that, you know, you know, a rich white person can't understand a poor black person. You know, I'm not saying that at all, but that there are going to be layers um, of, uh, you know, within any kind of, of image or cultural expression that are going to be differently accessible to different audiences. And that's okay. And that depending on who you are, you know, if I read, you know, the Caribbean poet or listen to the Senegalese musician, I take what I can out of it. I try. Um, but I accept that, like, I don't know that language. So um, all I can really get is the rhythm and the and the um, the sort of cadences and 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 enjoy that and have a kind of an emotional response to that or um or i know the language but i don't know that you know these particular um you know melodies or riffs are actually quotes to these other musicians or you know so um and so that's what that is to me what um uh, and there's a way in which if one is reading that way, as if every image or text is opaque, that one is, um, there's, there, you know, you, you, you're then communicating uh, as equals. That, uh, you know, I'm opaque, you're opaque, we're trying the best to, uh, um, to, bridge, the, to bridge the gap. Um, it's never going to be a hundred percent. Um, but that's okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, um, and so you're not demanding transparency. Right. And that's, I feel like that, um, is a really like help, helpful dismantling of what I'm projecting myself, like as a white right. settler male onto a lot of these images, which is like, if I'm a critical witness, I can get the right thing out of it. I can right, right. You know, decode it. Right. Um, and you're saying like, you, you don't, you, you can't know, like it's, there's an indeterminate nature right, to like right. that change. Uh, yeah. You have to remain open to it. Um, but it's worth working to approach it. Yeah. That's yeah. always true too. Yeah. Even For if sure. you can't know, um, it's yeah. worth working to approach it. Yeah. And, and, and to, you know, approach it with the sense that, um, yeah, there's no predetermined outcome without prescriptions or, uh, yeah. predictions or, or presuppositions, like to try and do your best to be aware of those things. And, yeah, you know, there's this, um, you, you have an article catastrophe and post-catastrophe and uh, a chapter, I think, in an anthology catastrophe and post-catastrophe in the films of, uh, Kamal Al-Jafari. Al Jaffrey, yeah, yeah. Al um, you you end that article, that piece, by just raising questions. Like this is the kind of open ended kind of opacity, um, you know, where you kind of don't want to necessarily draw conclusions. And you say, how can one create a cinema that goes beyond the melodramatic temporality of too late, of it's over, uh, or that avoids the false optimism of resistance? After it's become evident that resistance, whether violent or otherwise, will not undo the ongoing processes of what you called encroachment, theft, and erasure, 
that underpin every settler colonial project. Um, you know, this you say is I wrote very, that in a very pessimistic mood. <laughs> right. And yeah. actually on that point, yeah. like, um, I feel as though we should we should end with some sort of gesture to building hope, as you say, not something you have, but something you try and build. And I do think that there's an attempt in your co-edited book bad girls of the Arab world to like build toward hope on some level. Um, like it is this, it is an academic book, but it's a book that was inspired by another radical feminist text, bad girls of Japan published in th- 2005. Um, I guess my question about that book is, you know, what's useful or empowering even for societies in which, as you say, the vast majority of women wear the hijab and where the visibility of women's bodies in public spaces has been and continues to be hotly contested. You know, what is important? Can I just say that, you know, women's bodies are hotly contested everywhere? Thank you for saying (laughs) it should be said. Yeah, of course. Like even especially where they are, um, you know, like, let's say, rendered bare for commodity reasons. Right, right. And there was that case some years ago in France where, like, a woman was, like, forced to undress. Like, she was, I can't remember what exactly Mm. happened, but she was either expelled from the beach because she refused to undress Mm. or was made to undress so that she could stay on the beach. That was some, several years ago. It was a big scandal. Yeah, I mean, like, no matter where you look, I was talking to a, a friend recently about, um, you know, sport, sports culture, right? Yeah. And the the kind of um, the kind of asymmetries, inequalities within sport culture, where you know women have to very often sort of assert a feminist um, ethic of the body, where like they're just you know claiming ownership of it. But then too, you're like making your body like it's it's just you're ensnared in this kind of patriarchal yeah. 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 nexus feels like no matter what you do, but you are interested, you say in that text, uh, in transgression rather than agency, which you say allows us to focus on gendered dynamics in the contemporary Arab world, which is where you're looking, uh, within the complex limits and possibilities offered by personal historical and social context. So yeah, I mean, like that idea of transgression, of being bad, um, is interesting in terms of trying to kind of complicate the picture of women's embodied experiences within Arabic cultures. Um, So I guess, you know, did that evolve out of just this kind of feminist decolonial practice? What are the kind of key examples that you're thinking through? And, and also, I guess, how are you thinking with Saeed in sort of a feminist way to unpack and undo some of those like simplistic understandings of what it means to be um, a bad girl in the Arab world. Okay, that's interesting. I hadn't actually thought about it in relation to Edward Said. So, <laughs> well, you so say like uh, Orientalist understandings of gender. In oh, the okay, okay, world. there, okay, there, yeah, 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 all that. Yeah, right, that's right, where right. I kind of saw the Said coming out. Right, but that's. I guess that is more. I mean, yeah. So, well, um, I what was I going? Okay, so um, that book actually arose out of my friendship with my very good friend who passed away very suddenly and untimely just three weeks before the book came out, Rula Kowas, my co-editor. And, um, you know, we, we, we became friends in 2005 when she 
was uh, a visiting scholar at UNC Chapel Hill. And then I, you know, so I got to know her here and then went to Jordan and we became really, really good friends. We collaborated on um, a number of projects. And it was really um, just through that friendship of coming to an understanding of what her life was like as a, you know, a scholar, you know, woman, scholar, teacher, uh, living in the Jordanian context. And, um, you know, watching her navigate uh, the, um, uh, that context so that she could continue to do her work and in particular her teaching. She was, she was an incredibly devoted and generous teacher and, you know, mainly taught, you know, Jordanian women. Um, they were the ones that were attracted to her classes um, and really, really, really cared about them as, you know, as women and people, not just as students. And to, so, so that's, that's where the idea of the book came from is that, and so the idea is not to focus on, okay, you know, here are these limits placed on women and these women are like purposely deciding they're going to go beyond the limits for this reason or that reason or whatever. But, but rather the ways in which like the limits are not always clear and they change from time to time because, um, you know, the limits are there for particular reasons and those particular reasons uh, are going to um, need the limits to be in different places depending on, you know, how things are developing or changing, um, you know, external forces, internal forces, and so on. And so it's really hard to, it's really hard. And, um, so trying to give a nuanced understanding of what it means uh, to have these shifting transgressions, this, this, this line shift, and to live your life such that you can be yourself, whatever that means, um, that you can do the work that you think is important, um, and, uh, um, and live a life uh, and, and at the same time, navigate this limit, you know, making decisions about when is it okay to go a little bit over or when not, um, when do you find yourself, you know, you're just chugging along doing the same thing and all of a sudden the line has moved and you're over the line when you weren't before. Um, it's that, it's like looking at um, the work and artwork and just lived experience of women in various contexts through that lens. Yeah, and you do talk about sort of how transgression will will kind of almost constitute the line. Like it's transgression mm -hmm. almost kind of produces it uh, right, and right. Can also push the line back, right? Because yeah, right. these regimes kind of feel threatened. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, that question of the limits is certainly related to something you said earlier about uh, the Telezater siege and the sort of just the audacity of that and the sense that this must breach the limits of right, what right. is considered acceptable as, in terms of like transgressive, illegal violence, right? Military right. aggression. Um, so, Which, you know, by the way, you know, the siege was not, it wasn't, I just want to make it 
clear like that that siege was done by the you know right wing Lebanese militias, right. not by Israel. Um, no. Although they did have some support even in that early time, but um, okay, yeah, just Thank to just for, <laughs> no, I appreciate you yeah. clarifying. Yeah. Like the yeah. it, it is interesting too because um, like one of the things I was going to ask about was just like the ways in which um, there's this sort of discourse that the situation is too complicated to understand. Yeah, and sometimes it feels like that is a a way that people sort of apologize for not taking a position, right? Like it's too yeah. complicated. Um, do you encounter that sense of like, I can't weigh in because it's too complicated? And are you trying to kind of militate against that in your attempt to sort of, um, yeah, provide the coordinates uh, historically, politically for people? Well, I mean, of course it's complicated because we're talking about a hundred years of history. If we're talking, if we're going back to Israel, Palestine now, rather than um, bad girls of the Arab world, which is. Yeah. 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 Um, but um, uh, so a hundred years of any history are going to be really, really complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I think there are that there is a way of understanding that history that is. Um, that is not that comp, you know, that, that allows one to understand uh, its trajectory mm-hmm. and even most of the little complications um, uh, pretty straightforwardly. Mm-hmm. And, and that, it, that really is about, you know, looking at it through the lens of power. And um, so that's, you know, uh, you know, the colonial powers, mainly the British and the French, uh, you know, also, of course, you know, the Italians and the Belgians and, you know, everybody else who had colonies. Um, But, you know, at least, you know, in the Middle East and North Africa, the the British and the French um, uh, in the early period, and then, you know, the U.S. interests um, and, you know, for a time, you know, Soviet interests. Um, I, um, and I, I, so the fact of the matter that, that, that these powerful actors wanted certain political formations to take place and did what they could to ensure certain political formations and to foreclose other ones, mm-hmm. um, is what has shaped and continues to shape what's going on. Right. Yeah. And uh, so once, you know, once you look at it that way, uh, then it kind of falls into place. Yeah. Um, and and then you can kind of start to name it um, yeah. confidently, clearly. Yeah. Um, again, like Levy talks about how in his journalism, like he doesn't like using the term fascism, but he sees fascism and he names it, right? He there was a time where it wasn't, he says, it wasn't accurate to call what Israel is doing apartheid. It, it, it is accurate currently, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, so just marking it, understanding it. Um, and, and the thing that you also, like, maybe this is the last question I'll ask because you've been so generous with your time. I appreciate it. Um, you know, you name the, or reinforce the naming of Palestinian steadfastness, right? This mm-hmm. is 
a core value and a kind of political rallying cry that's existed yeah. within Palestine since at least like the Six Day War in 1967. And you say like, the artistic practices of Palestinians constitute an image archive of steadfastness. Yeah. Um, are you, I mean, wh where is your heart at in terms of, you know, the idea of this powerful force being potentially under threat right now, you know, but the overwhelming displacement, basically virtually all of Gaza, you right. know, evacuated and just the vengefulness and the, and the cruelty of what Israel is doing. Do you, do you worry about the, the, you know, the, the protection of that value of steadfastness, which you say operates like water flowing through the cracks and ideological walls of settler colonialism? It's just, it's, yeah, I don't know how else to put it other than are you worried about that steadfastness, as it were, drying up? Well, I mean, I think we see we see the power of that that uh, image archive of steadfastness today mm -hmm. in the the mass mass support for Palestinians around the world. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this really kind of takes us back to the to the very beginning of our conversation, which is like, I mean, I think you're sort of asking me, like, is there hope? <laughs> More or less. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, so I say again, we have to build it. Mm -hmm. um, and there's evidence that all, you know, like the work that has been done by Palestinians, with Palestinians, and even the work done for Palestinians, you know, mm -hmm. and that, you know, that's a kind of a right, like in, like, you shouldn't do things for people in struggle. You should struggle with them. But even some of the work that's been done for Palestinians uh, has contributed to this huge archive, um, which people are mobilizing in all the ways that they can. Will it work? I don't know. Uh, but can we afford to just not do it because it might not work or it probably won't work? Absolutely not. Um, Agreed. So, yeah. yeah. Um, thanks so much, Nadia. You're welcome. <laughs>